quite often see reference to autism being a superpower, particularly, I think, in products aimed at children and their parents. And I can really appreciate how the intention is to put a positive spin on autism and being autistic. Um, But it's a a double-edged sword in my view and I think it is seen as quite problematic um, by autistic adults on behalf of themselves and also thinking about the experience of being an autistic child as well. So I'm quite keen to address the question of is autism a superpower from my own personal experience as ever. I'm quite clear that autism is is a neutral thing. It's not a superpower. It's not a disability in itself. As I said in a recent episode about disability, from my point of view, autism, it's an operating system. It's a neurotype. I very much see it as a characteristic like being um, female, like being the age I am, which is 41 now, like um, the sexual orientation that I have, the ethnicity that I am. I'm also autistic. That's my neurotype. It's a completely neutral term. What I do know from my own experience is that along with the disabilities, including some aspects that I talked about around sort of learning disability, cognitive processing challenges that I have, I do also have some quite significant strengths. Now, not all autistic people are going to have specific strengths or specific types of disability. And in fact, the language I didn't use in that episode um, is impairment, but I'm realising now that's what I was actually referring to. So an autistic person won't necessarily have any particular impairments, nor will they particularly have any types of um, abilities or strengths or skills. Um, but we are, I think, a, a type of human of um, of extremes. And so I think it it's not unusual for some of us to have um, quite significant, very specific skills and strengths. And in fact, one of those that not all, not all autistic people have or can do, one of those is actually the, the copying skill, which we use to mask. Masking is acting. It is copying people of a different neurotype who know how to behave, know how to conduct themselves, know how to speak in a certain way, know how to sit in a certain way, know how to everything in a certain way. And so some of us, because we've specifically got the copying skill, means that we can copy them and we learn how to act as non-autistic and we therefore learn how to mask. The skill is innate, so we start doing it from very young and we don't know we're doing it. We're not consciously copying, we're not consciously acting, we're not consciously masking. But there is a specific skill set that enables us to do that. So I've I've been wanting to talk about my strengths for a while um, because I've been aware of them for a long time since before finding out that I'm autistic. 
they were very difficult to reconcile um, with, alongside the things that I find so incredibly diff- difficult. It was very confusing and very strange from a very, very young age, being very, very clever at some things and very, very what I thought of as stupid at some things. So I was both very clever and very stupid, which is incredibly confusing when you don't know why. My particular strengths are around information capture and information processing and some forms of communication. So this first appeared in my life um, as a very small child. I learned to read and speak very fluently and with a quite wide vocabulary and with quite perfect grammar and spelling um, really, really young, definitely before starting primary school. And I, I can also read extremely fast and I can write, I can draft, my mind can draft the written word much faster than I can write or type um, writing in particular is something that I struggle with because I now understand I've got a disconnect um, as a sort of a motor control issue. So I have a lot of problems with written handwriting. And what's really interesting, actually, is I've recently started finding sort of memorabilia from my early childhood in my father's things who, who passed away recently. There were lots of typed accounts from when I was six around six I discovered typing my mother had an electric typewriter and I and I took to it very quickly and I really loved typing out sort of I don't know whether I was being asked to do it whether it was a school thing probably not because we weren't typing at age six in the 80s but I you know I wrote lots of stuff about what was happening what I'd done at school what the food was like what I liked and didn't like and it it's typed out beautifully and I know for a fact that I did that completely independently um, because I remember doing it vaguely but also because I've made very sure to include in these written documents, these typed documents, um, that I had no assistance from an adult which really made me chuckle but I do remember discovering typing and learning that I was able to capture written information as fast as I was able to think it, which I wasn't able to do with a pen and paper. I also talked constantly as a child, which is interesting because I do have a love-hate relationship with verbal talking now. I do find it quite hard to be fluent, but it does hugely depend what I'm talking about. So if I'm talking about something I've got an awful lot of subject matter expertise on, I'll be very fluent If I'm talking about myself or my life, how I feel in particular, um, or something that I'm trying to make sense of as I go, a bit like now, I'm much less fluent. But I talked nonstop as a child and I know what will have been behind that. I was very, very dedicated to sharing knowledge and sharing information. So if I learned something, I would want to broadcast that the second I got into the car after school, 
with my mum who, bless her, never got a minute's peace because I never stopped talking. Until, of course, people started telling me not to talk. And then I started masking and all of that went away from about the age of eight. So I now understand that actually those things are called hyperlexia, the abilities with um, reading and writing and being able to read very fast, being able to write very fast and and well-crafted as well. For me, the drafting of a written document just does itself in my mind. Um, and so all I have to do is kind of just keep up with the, with the typing. And it comes out in quite a neatly edited form. I don't have to do a huge amount of editing. And in fact, my editing skills are very good as well. Although I'm sure there's more I could learn because it's been completely self-taught, um, which I think I'd actually quite enjoy. On top of that, then, a particular ability that I have that has actually become the work of my career is taking in information and being able to organise and categorise it into different themes and different levels of information. The way I actually use that in my career is I work in health policy. So I've got um, knowledge of all kinds of national health policy frameworks. That's legislation, that's um, health system guidance, all of the rules, basically, of how the health system is meant to meant to do what it does. And I got an understanding of who within that complex system is responsible and accountable for what, where the money flows. And so I've got a map. I can map how all of that connects. And I've got a very good memory for the very, very specific detail of what um, is contained within each one of those policy frameworks. So it means that I can also relatively easily see what's missing. And I can easily see that if something doesn't happen in the health system, if there's a, a part of the health system that is um, failing or lacking, I've got an understanding of where that re- is uh, supported or um, exacerbated or there's a barrier to delivery in the actual rules of the health system and the actual rules of government. So the first 12 years of my career was in mental health policy. I worked for a mental health charity and I developed an extremely intricate and and deep and wide knowledge of mental health policy in England. And so over time, because I was holding so much of that, I could I could see where the gaps were. I could see why, because of the rules and because of the responsibilities and accountabilities for different organisations, I could see why mental health services were systematically discriminated against at every single turn in every single piece of health policy, including the funding streams, including data capture, including regulation, lots of aspects of the health system. So a very big part of my career was working very directly on a national mental health strategy for the NHS, uh, which was published in 2016. Um, And that was a sort of a culmination of you know, 10, 11 years of developing all of this knowledge. And I know that I had a unique perspective. And now I understand that it was my autistic brain that enabled me to see a map that intricate 
and identify the gaps and then be able to um to be you know to be starting to actually figure out okay so what specifically to different organizations and different players need to be required to do differently so that the mental health system is actually part of the whole health system and actually gets funding or gets um, measured and there's accountability and transparency as to what's going on with that. Um, So that kind of work is perfectly suited to the way that I think. I'm in a different area of health policy now, very much doing um, a similar sort of thing. That, along with my ability to absorb a lot of information, read and write very fast, um, really means that this is you know, it's what I'm good at and I can do relatively high impact work, which I find very satisfying, very fulfilling. On a, on a slightly less um on a slightly less sort of significant level, um this ability to categorize information also seems to apply specifically to my abilities for cleaning and tidying. Although I don't always live in the cleanest, tidiest house, um from the perspective of my contribution, because actually uh, my husband is absolutely phenomenal um, at cleaning and tidying and and keeping things very nice and actually has carried more than half a load um, over the last 20 years, I'd say. But when I'm not burned out, which I'm actually not um, in recent times, as previously discussed, my cleaning and tidying abilities, if I get into the zone, can be quite extreme. And this is where I st- this is where I'm going to start talking about the double-edged sword. Because I've got the ability to map out for myself whether it's working on policy or figuring out how to approach cleaning and tidying um which is information processing in a way it's like it's mapping out okay what are all the jobs that need to be done what are the cleaning products that would need to be used what is the order in which it makes sense to do these things going from big to small the downside to that is that i as an autistic person who didn't know i was autistic and had very significant issues with self-worth um and valuing myself and even having a sense of self I put so much energy into doing the work that I was able to do because it gave me a sense of self and a sense of worth. So my work was who I was. And before that, my studies were who I was. Um, And in fact, at school, I absolutely loved essay writing. I loved English literature I loved history. I would love absorbing the information, doing the reading and writing essays. In year nine, I remember doing my SATs test in year nine when I was 14. And I got a freakishly high mark on my English lit um, SATs exam. The average was something like level six. Level seven, you were pretty great. Level eight, you were really excelling. Um for your year group um, compared to the average. I got a level nine um, and I remember my English teacher taking me aside and kind of looking like she was trying to reconcile to herself how I'd got such a freakishly high grade and saying, well, someone 
in the country had to get this grade. So it was almost like she was saying, you got this kind of at random because it's so freakishly high. But at the same time, she had been marking my essays up until that point, And she had been writing comments on my essays like, how, how do you write like this? How do you have a vocabulary like this at your age? And my vocabulary at that age was far superior to what it is now because I used to read and write all the time. That's all I did. And I was reading literature, which I don't really do much of anymore. I spend a lot of my time now reading about, um, not as much about health policy as I probably should. I spend a lot of my time now reading about autism because because we also, you know, hone in on our special interests. It's a, it's about taking in as much information as possible on the topic that is of interest to us at, at the time, or, or it certainly is for me. And on that note, actually, I want to talk about monotropism or monotropism. I'm not sure how it's pronounced, but there's an element of being autistic where we're monotropic in our thinking and in our perception and in our approach. It means being focused on one thing at a time. It's why autistic people really struggle with being interrupted or having some kind of, you know, music or talking when we're trying to focus on something. It's a complete inability to multitask in any way, shape or form. Um, Again, not saying that all autistic people are monotropic to the same extent. I am extremo monotropic. So I literally can't walk and listen at the same time. I can't do anything and have another thing happening at the same time. So what can happen for an autistic person is if you are doing some kind of activity that is harnessing your strength, so you're kind of in flow, you're doing the thing that comes naturally to you, you're very good at it, yeah, you're, you're having a, a very, very productive experience. Monotropism also means that it's quite hard to stop what we're doing. It's quite often talked about that children at school find it very difficult to go from one class to another, that like the transitions are very difficult because you were very invested in this one thing and we could have done it all day, you know, from, from the beginning to the end of the day. So it's very hard to stop. And if you don't have a firm schedule or or a firm stop time where there's going to be some kind of intervention then we will just go and go and go that means that for someone like me in my job in my in my day job my paid employed contracted job for years i worked far beyond the scope of my contracted um, responsibility. I worked far more hours than I was contracted to work. I thought about, because when I was in mental health policy, because I was very, very passionate about the issues as well, I thought about it 24-7. I dreamed about it. If I was stuck on something, it would often resolve itself in my dreams at night. I would write papers on the weekend. I thought about it all the time and my actual working days would be very long it was very typical of me um in my 30s to be at work from 9 in the morning to 7 7:30 8 in the evening even more so when i moved into 
the actual um, strategic work that I was talking about, where I was seconded into um, a national NHS organisation for a year, um, there was so much work to do. And I was on such a mission and I was able to do it. And I had no boundaries whatsoever. Um, so I worked, I worked very long hours. I didn't take breaks. I didn't take time off. And that's a real issue. You know, I find it very difficult to take breaks. Um, and I also find it difficult for lots of reasons to um, book and take annual leave, although I'm getting better at that recently. So it can actually be quite exploited, whether consciously or unconsciously. For a lot of that time, my employers wouldn't have known that I was working such late hours. I have so many memories of walking around my places of work long after everyone else had left the building in the dark, you know, walking around these big buildings where the fluorescent lights go off if there's no movement underneath them and just basically all of the lights in the whole buildings, you know, going off around me um, and then coming on as I would walk, you know, down the corridor to the loo or whatever. And I really, really couldn't make sense to myself of why I was doing it. I knew it was unusual and there was part of it that obviously really liked being in the office completely alone as well, because it was such respite, such a relief when everyone was gone. But yeah, it means that I overworked myself to an extreme level in pursuit of the outcomes that I really wanted to achieve in this work. I really, I wanted to, I wanted to make change. I wanted to do something that would actually have impact for people accessing health services. And that's how I feel now about autistic people being able to access what they need. There is so much that I can see that needs doing. It's not my day job. So I have to really, really take care of myself and think about how much energy I can put and what I choose to put energy into in my personal time on these projects where I don't have a contract, I don't have paid work, um, well, there are lots of things I want to do, you know, separate to and in addition to this podcast. This is quite boundaried. I can do this, you know, once a week, but I have to be very careful with where my energy goes on everything else during the week. And so that's kind of that's where I kind of want to get to in conclusion. Any superpowers or any kind of extra super strengths that autistic people have, they are very double edged and. It's very important that we've got the knowledge and the self-understanding, which you can only get if you know that you're autistic. You can only have that understanding of, of the risks um, and the vulnerabilities if you actually know who you are and what you are. It's also really important that the people around us have got an understanding or, or can maybe spot when these things are happening if if we really struggle to kind of boundary and structure ourselves a truly you know inclusive workplace would know um that some people will be at risk of basically working too hard and you know not actually necessarily being able to provide that structure for themselves but that said there are things that we can do it just takes time and knowledge it's very difficult for us navigating this for ourselves we have to work so hard 
at taking care of ourselves so that we don't work too hard. But it means that it's very important that we understand how to switch off. I find it incredibly difficult to switch off. And I've been reflecting recently, the only time that my brain actually feels relaxed and stops worrying in quite an overwhelming way is if I'm watching some kind of really formulaic, quite repetitive TV. I really like TV shows that nothing traumatic is likely to happen. You know, I know the characters really well, or I really like shows like Glow Up, where it's, you know, um, like a talent being featured in a, in a competition. And there's a real, there's a set format. I love Drag Race for that reason. That's the only way I can relax my brain. And for a long time, I was, I felt ashamed that I would watch, you know, crappy TV because surely someone professional and adult and grown up and mature shouldn't be watching things like this. And now I understand why it's actually quite important. So I do actually take breaks sometimes specifically to watch some TV that I know is going to relax my mind. And it's also important that I'm taking control over my schedule. So I've got a lot more booked into my personal calendar now that is like, okay, this is your working time. This is your making dinner and eating dinner time. This is your bedtime. It's all there, my my schedule kind of for, for weekdays and for weekends to help me know, to help me have prompts for, okay, it's time to stop. It's time to stop and have your downtime before cooking dinner. It's time to stop and get ready for tomorrow and get ready for bed. It's time to stop. It's time to stop. I need that message constantly. And now I, I've got the tools and the knowledge to do that, but I didn't have any of that in my 20s or my 30s or my teens. So that's, you know, 30 years of overwork, isolating myself because I was working all the time, doing good work and producing good work that I'm proud of, but at what cost? at what cost to my relationships, my health. And actually, everything that I've just described is one of the major contributors to why I never managed to figure out how to have children, which I spoke about um, in my last episode, which was too complicated to explain during that episode, because I was focusing on how that's impacted on me emotionally and the grief of that. But I absolutely, with no boundaries around work, And without being able to stop, I absolutely could not see how it was possible to have a baby or even be pregnant in those conditions. It didn't seem possible. I didn't feel entitled to to take breaks or stop working or have boundaries around working in order to manage the realities of trying to conceive, being pregnant, having a baby and then raising a child. It simply didn't seem possible and I could see other people doing it and it was a complete mystery to me as to how they were doing it. So now I know. So like I say, you know, it's not a superpower. The strengths that some of us have come at very significant cost to us as human beings and that is an important message for me, I think. Okay, thanks so much, everyone. I really hope you have a wonderful week ahead and I look forward to next time. Bye.